Hey everyone, this is New Narratives, dispatches from Minnesota that highlight the stories of Asian America. I'm your host, Anya Steinberg. I'm the storyteller intern at Asian American Organizing Project, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, focused on supporting the Asian American Pacific Islander community in the Twin Cities area. And this is going to be my last episode for a while. I'll be working at a summer camp in northern Minnesota for a few months. But don't worry, I'm leaving you in good hands. My friend and coworker Sienna will be taking over for me, and she's got some great episodes up her sleeve for the summer. Anyway, enough of all this. On to the episode. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about what makes you something. Is it because you claim it? Is it because there's a certain percentage of your blood that can be identified with a people? Do you get the Asian card when you speak the language or eat the food, or is it when you have more than like 10 experiences with racism? I grew up knowing I was Korean, mostly because when I was younger, I got really familiar with all of the fun stereotypes that kids deploy to remind you that you're Asian. I was born Korean, but in a way, I also wasn't born Korean. Being Korean is something I've had to make for myself, and I've been kind of doing a bad job. What I mean is that my biological dad was an anonymous Korean sperm donor, and I was raised by my white family members. And now I'm 21, and I want to know how my Korean side immigrated to America. I want to learn to cook more than just japchae. I want to know where my family came from. I want more. I set out to find other people who, like me, wanted more too. They were born Korean in South Korea, but they may have not always felt Korean because before they knew it, they were being flown across the ocean and adopted into a cozy, loving home right here in Minnesota. Or not. You know, and we always say these like platitudes about adoption is a lifelong journey. It's for the best interests of the child. And I think that's bullshit. Today, for the season finale of New Narratives, we're talking about Korean adoptees, yes, but we're also talking about how complex families can be and how we create our identities and our homes. Adoption, it's not always a comfortable or a pretty story. So just a warning, this episode has explicit language, descriptions of violence, and mentions of suicidal thoughts. There's a lot to say, so let's dive right in. Part 1. Diana when Diana Albrecht was little, she wanted more than anything to get a perm. Every little girl wants to look like her mom, right? So I always, always wanted big curly hair like her. And she's got these, you know, piercing blue eyes too. And realizing like, oh, I will never have eyes that look like her. I even wanted to get like a perm. <laughs> My <laughs> her sister, it was a hairstylist. And I remember just like begging begging her, I was like, oh, I'm sure, I really, I really just want curly hair, like, mom, can you give me a perm? She's like, no, not until you're, like, 10 years old or something. Like, that was her rule. She doesn't give girls under the age of 10 perms. <laughs> um, I just feel like little things like that, um, you know, at face value, be like, oh, like, I can't have curly hair like my mom. But, like, that, as a kid, you don't necessarily understand like the impact that something like that might have in terms of like how you see yourself or like your identity. Diana is a Korean adoptee who was adopted to Minnesota by her white mother and her dad, who is also a Korean adoptee. She grew up going to predominantly white schools, first some private schools and then a public high school. Obviously my public school is a little bit more like racially diverse than the other two schools I'd been to. But I think just like your val values and priorities as a young person is, again, just trying to fit in and just trying to be quote unquote normal. But 
what society is deemed as normal is just rooted in like white supremacy culture, right? Mm -hmm. Diana was raised without a good idea of what it meant to be Korean. You know, for my first birthday or whatever, there's pictures of me and this, you know, the beautiful little baby hanbok that I came over in that I'm sure every Korean adoptee girl has. It's like pink and it has Mm -hmm. flowers on it, you know, so I got those like portraits done at like whatever cheap photography studio and then they put my brother in one too and Besides sticking Diana in a hanbok, there were a few other things her parents did to kind of introduce her and her brother to Korean culture. You know, my mom would always try taking me to Korean restaurants when I was in middle school or just like little little introductions into Korean culture. But like, of course, like she doesn't know any, yeah, anything. My dad doesn't know anything either. And I think if they tried putting me in Korean culture camp, maybe they did. I don't know. I probably would have put up a big fight about it, right? I don't want to be that weird Asian girl, you know, hanging out with other weird Asian people. Like, I'd rather hang out with normal kids and, like, not even address that part of myself. She doesn't necessarily blame her white mom for being unable to foster her Koreanness, though. I mean, my parents are both, like, very loving people, but my mom especially. Like, I know she tried her best, but she's a white woman from Iowa, right? What does she know about Korean culture? What does she know about <laughs> raising a non-white kid as a white person, right? And so I can't, I can't hold resentment towards them for things that they did in the past. But the unavoidable consequence of the kind of colorblind way they raised her was that she grew up not understanding what it meant to be Korean. When I met Diana over Zoom, she really looked the part of a young millennial artist living in Minneapolis. She told me that, by day, she's a senior art director at an ad agency. After hours, she does a lot of photography and also crafts I've never heard of, like polymer clay jewelry making. She was wearing those circular wire-rimmed type glasses that I've always wanted to pull off. She has choppy, wavy, messy-in-a-cool-way dark hair that was cut just below her jawline. But it hasn't always looked that way. You know, when I bleached my hair five years ago, it wasn't like, oh, I want to be white, so I want to bleach my hair. It wasn't that at all, right? Mm -hmm. It's not as simple as that. It was more so me thinking that, like, my natural hair, my natural hair color was boring and generic and basic. And what's the most extreme thing that I can do to it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just think, like, having, you know, the blonde hair, the the juxtaposition of being an Asian person and being blonde was just so edgy and cool. And it was edgy and cool, right? Like I got so much validation from like strangers or like random people, friends, like, oh wow, your hair is so cool. I love your hair so much, you know? (laughs) That like makes you feel good, right? Before Diana was an edgy Asian, she went through quite a few transformations, beginning with being the geeky middle school tomboy with glasses and braces. Even as a person in middle, like in middle school, right? I was like, I did not think I was attractive or beautiful at all. I was like not confident in myself, you know. I was Asian, so I just like thought I just looked nerdy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and all these stereotypes that being a woman and then being an Asian woman like stacked up against me. And then I think once I got into high school, like survived puberty, and like I don't know, kind of was cute. I just went into this like hyper feminine um wore lots of makeup wore lots of like tight clothing i am a tomboy i am super femme 
And then I'm going to bleach my hair too. So it's like all these like weird, random, drastic things that I did to myself to try to feel attractive or beautiful or whatever it is. A year ago, she decided it was time to get rid of the bleach blonde look. Her hair was basically falling off. It was so damaged. You know, I thought that when I dye my hair back to its natural color, I would really embrace embracing like my Asian-ness and my natural beauty and all this other shit I told myself. But that didn't quite pan out. And then I was like, oh my God, I hate my hair. I'm so ugly, <laughs> like all these things. And she had to like cut off most of my hair too because it was so damaged from all the bleach. And I was just like, what the fuck did I just do? For Diana, fostering her own sense of pride and belonging in her Koreanness has been an ongoing struggle in her young adult life. But I still catch myself, you know, after this project, after this whole experience, thinking like, oh shit, like I'm a bad Korean person. I don't know how to speak the language. I don't know how to pronounce any of the food that I really, really like. <laughs> like I just, I went to, you know, a Korean deli and like ordered my meal with the Korean like words for the food. Like, oh, I want some tteokbokki and bulgogi and like whatever, you know? And I was just like, that was so scary for me. Mm-hmm. And they're not words that are necessarily hard to pronounce. Like fucking white per- friend knows, <laughs> knows how to say like, oh, kimchi jjigae, you know? Like it's not hard, but I just put so much pressure on myself to be a good Asian person or to represent this culture that I literally know nothing about and like, don't have I do have the tools but have not like mastered the kind of like nuance of it right and it's not like I'm not interested in it like Mm -hmm. I am but I just I truly feel like I'm just like a white person learning about Korean culture and then I'm like oh my god am I like appropriating (laughs) culture she feels like in some ways trying to become a real Korean whatever that means shouldn't be the goal this is one thing, you know, I talk about with my other adoptee friends is that like, you know, we grew up in American culture and like we got that down cool. But like, what is what is the Korean adoptee culture? We just have to make that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think a lot of it is just like forgiving ourselves for knowing that we will never be a full on 100 percent Korean person or whatever. And just figure it out and make it our own. So basically, Diana was confused. A few years ago, she was looking for answers and a new art project. And what she ended up embarking on was a nearly two-year-long journey that today she calls Placed. Placed is a book Diana published, a combination of portraits and these little interview essays with different Korean adoptees from around the country, all talking about what it means to be an adoptee. Ashley believes her adoptive mother was never fully on board with her, their first adopted child, nor was she on board with their other two Korean girls they adopted. We were just a nuisance, Ashley claims. The story Ashley grew up with surrounding her adoption and her Koreanness went something like this. My mother told me things like, you should be lucky you're here because you would have died on the street. No one cared for you or wanted you. If you were still there, you would probably be prostituting yourself. You're hearing excerpts from Placed. Nature appeals to her in many ways. The beauty is obvious that she does not deny. More than that, however, it's the one judgment-free space where she has complete autonomy. She can ugly cry, wail with joy, talk quietly to herself, or yell at the top of her lungs. The woods will always accept her as she is. Acceptance and self-love really happened here, she gleams. 
I was finally okay with being Korean. I was finally okay being me. When he consented to the family search, Eric had disclosed wanting to meet his birth brother first, before their parents, if any of his kin were to be found. His own adoption papers did not give any information about his young or older brother beyond affirming his existence. The two reunited after more than 26 years in a bleak receiving room at the adoption agency. While the agency workers worked on shuffling the two through, Eric and his brother rebonded instantly. He and his young spent the next three hours embracing, taking breaks to wipe their red, tear-soaked eyes. No need for a translator to decipher a brotherly bond. And written by Diana herself. In my prom photo, a dark periwinkle backless dress hangs from my athletic body. A poorly done ombre had stripped the lower half of my hair of its darkness, while my eyes were now caked with smoky chalk and obstructed by my synthetic lashes. Refusing to pay for a hair salon visit, I attempted to curl my own hair in a formal updo for the first time. Through tutorial after tutorial, I shard my already damaged hair in the pursuit of prestige. Burn marks, courtesy of my much-neglected curling iron, line the right side of my face from my temple down to my cheekbone and neck. That day, I had finally achieved the representation of femininity and prestige I thought I needed to fit in. I'm not one of them, but for one moment, I was close enough. I had dedicated 21 months, 22 months of my life to this, like literally working on this thing at any time I wasn't at my nine to five. Like I spent so much time on this and I think I just, I, I implied this at the end of my story is, is expecting myself to feel complete in my journey afterward. Diana had this feeling that creating this masterpiece would mean that she could finally be satisfied and understand exactly who she is and how she feels. My mindset was, this has to be perfect. I have to be fixed after this. And I wasn't, you know? And I think even after the event and the book launch and like receiving all these really awesome, genuinely nice messages from other adoptees or Asian Americans or even transracial adoptees, I don't know. I like, I, I, I genuinely fell into like a depressive state for a few weeks after the event because I didn't feel how I expected myself to feel. I truly felt like nothing. <laughs> After the after the the event, and that's like a hard, I don't know, that was like a really hard thing to process for me. It wasn't until she sat down to talk with another artist friend that she finally came to terms with the fact that, well, of course her journey wasn't done. Her friend told her, Diana, that's not what life is about. And Diana realized that just because she couldn't wrap all of her confusion up neatly and shelve it for the rest of her life didn't mean that she didn't change or grow at all. The the personal growth in the past, you know, two years that I've experienced is truly more valuable than than this beautiful end product that I had created. Um, and I don't know, it's it's never going to be final, right? That's just life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the lie that we're told. <laughs> that things are nice and linear and there's a final destination well guess what kids there's not (laughs) the bearer of bad news 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. Um, but I think there's beauty in that, you know, like all like jokes aside, I think there's something really beautiful to 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 what drives us as humans and what drives us as as creatives. Diana's gone through a few phases when it comes to thinking about her adoptee identity. But these days especially, she's been trying to shift the way she talks about herself as an adoptee. I don't want to focus too much on, on the traumas or the negatives. And that's something I'm realizing now that, you know, if there's like a part two or three of this, <laughs> we'll see, um, is kind of shifting those stories. Because I think, or shifting maybe my perspective now that I've... Like, I don't want to have to dwell on on the traumas or negativities of everything and maybe focus more on something that's, that's beyond, like, what happens after the healing, right? Part two, Jane. The first time Jane and her sister flew on a plane, it was when they were babies, being sent overseas in 1972. They'd been adopted from Korea to Minnesota, which is where Jane lived up until about 16 years ago, when she got a divorce, picked everything up, and moved back to Korea. I sort of, like, didn't know that there's this thing called California or Hawaii that I could, like, go there. And find other Asian people. (laughs) Yeah, like Guam or Saipan. I, like, had no idea. (laughs) So I was like, I'm just going to go to Korea. (laughs) To me, that seems so, pardon my language, ballsy. But the roots of her decision date back to when she was just five years old. So we had like Korean stuff in our house. Okay, so there's Korean stuff. And the reason why is because my sister and I, who were advertised as orphans, rolled off the airplane with a family photo album in our suitcase. What Jane is saying doesn't square at all with being orphans. Her mom didn't just abandon her on the street, and she also didn't die shortly after Jane was born. Instead, her mom made sure that Jane and her sister got on the airplane to the U.S. with something to remember her by. The Christmas after Jane and her sister arrived in America, their mom sent gifts to them from Korea, like hanbok, a traditional Korean dress. Jane didn't know much about the gifts. And so I wanted to talk to my mom about it, and I remember sitting on her lap, and then I started to cry, and I'll probably cry now. I started to cry, and she just got up and walked away. Hmm. So that was my first inkling, like something's wrong. And then after that, I, I asked her, man, how can I be like 50 years, like almost 50 years old? And still like when I think about how it was when I was five, I'm like still crying. Jane remembers wanting to know more about where she came from and who she came from. I would always ask my American mom, like, when can I meet my Korean mom? And she'd say like, well, when you die, because Mm. like if you you die, I guess you go to heaven and then you can meet all the people. (laughs) So, So then of course I wanted to die. Like if I want to meet my mom, I have to die. I also had this feeling like something was wrong because in our house we had very few books but we had this um, set of encyclopedias and so I think I must have like gotten from the encyclopedia that maybe like there's Buddhists in Korea and they're not Christian so how am I going to meet my mom because he's probably going to be in hell because she's not a Christian. And so Jane grew up, understandably, wanting to meet her mom well before heaven or hell. When she was 23, she traveled to Korea for the first time to reunite with her birth family. Mm-hmm. So you go see the palace, you eat things, you go shopping, you buy your hanbok, you, you know, all this. <laughs> and like everybody comes around to see the, this person that maybe they heard about, but they didn't meet yet. So it was like super touristy like that for 10 years. 
then my mom died and I was like, oh my gosh, I never knew her. Like I met her, but I never really knew her. And it wasn't real to me because a person who is like super abstract to you, you can't really imagine that they can die because hmm. they never really lived either. Like they were never really alive to you because you never really had a relationship with them. That blew my mind because it's so true. Jane's mom was almost not real to her, even though she'd met her and been visiting her for a decade. She was like an idea. And so when she died... I was just devastated because I was like, holy shit, she actually died. She did what everybody does. She died. How dare she? Mm -hmm. And I realized I had never, never prepared myself for that reality because it just never occurred to me that she could die. She'd been putting off learning Korean, which meant she'd been putting off building a relationship with her mom, which meant she'd been putting off really learning where she came from. Because I could always learn Korean later. I had my Barron's diplomat cassette tapes, you know, like I could always learn that later. Like we didn't have the internet resources that we had now. Like I didn't have enough money to go to University of Minnesota and take the Korean class, you know, so it's like always later, 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 later. And I was just devastated after she died. And I just came to Korea because it was like, I can't wait anymore. She moved to Korea permanently, which is when she started to wonder more about why she was adopted beyond the level of her mom's individual decision. Supposedly we're all citizens, but why is it that some citizens like me get stripped of their citizenship and sent abroad? Why is that if supposedly we all have equal rights as citizens? Like, what social conditions in Korea led to Jane's mother's decision to relinquish custody of her children so they'd be adopted to the U.S.? And so I found out, well, it's because certain groups are just perceived as bad by the general public. So like if you're a single mom, if you're divorced, if you're, you know, like outside of this, what they call normal family, then you're like bad and nobody is going to make any public policy to protect you. And then that's when I found out like, um, you know, like 80 to 90 percent of all adoptees are single mother's kids and how patriarchal the Korean society is and how little they have enforced child support on fathers, even now, even now, like it's only been like three, no, five years. I think it's been five years now since they have instituted an agency which is supposed to help to collect child support. This construction of single motherhood hasn't always existed in Korea either. It was made in the USA. There is a scholar, Kwani Jung, um, she argued that this idea of single moms, they got this idea of a single mom, that there is such a thing as a single mom from American society. And then they kind of like created this category and they're able to send children away kind of by, by using this, this trope of single motherhood. Creating this negativity and shame around single motherhood, that was instrumental in creating the surge of single mothers putting their children up for adoption. But why would Korea want kids to be sent away? Why did the U.S. want to adopt these children so much? Jane thinks it's not really about what's best for the mother or for the child. On the Korean side, Jane said it had a lot to do with the president Park Chung-hee, whose government was considered a dictatorship. Park ruled from 1963 to 1972. And back then... South Korea is one of the poorest economies in the world. So it might be like comparing to Ethiopia, like... 20 years ago, where just like a small amount of American money, it was like a huge amount of money in Ethiopia, right? And adoption was a quick way to get a hold of American money. Use American dollars because our national currency is worth, worth shit. Like get hard American cash so you can 
you know, participate in the world economy and, you know, build a highway or something. At the same time, Korea was trying to develop itself out of the economic crisis and ruin that followed the Korean War. The, the last people that you want to um, have, as, have as your burden when you're a country that's trying to develop is a bunch of people who are socially marginalized already and, and need social services. And those people were single mothers and their children, especially kids that were born out of wedlock to mothers who had been prostituted to American GIs during the Korean War. The first Korean adoption to the U.S. is usually credited to a guy named Harry Holt in 1955. He brought eight kids to the U.S., driven by some white savior complex he had about Korean children. But in the 1970s and 80s, there was this huge surge of adoptions. International adoptions of Korean kids soared to about 50,000 and 65,000 in those two decades, respectively. To give you an idea of how huge that was, in the 2010s, only 5,000 Korean kids were adopted overseas. This massive wave of adoptions and the social conditions that led to it, it's had a lasting effect on Korea's population structure that is just now coming to a head. So right now the irony is that some people love to point out and I feel kind of sick about <clears throat> is that our, we're on the verge of a demographic implosion because a lot of Korean women due to the patriarchy just don't want to get married and have babies anymore. They're like, fuck that, we're not doing that anymore. So we don't have enough new people to replace the people who are going to die. In the meantime, though, they continue to send children for adoption. So some of the unwed moms here are saying, well, we should really kind of use this issue as um, a tool to say you need to support unwed moms more because we need to have population. To Jane, the need for support for unwed moms shouldn't be tied to the need for population. But I feel really, so I'm like, okay, yeah, I see the obviousness of that. Okay, I see how that could be useful. But I feel mm -hmm. gross about it because what if the population was high? Like when I was adopted, then you have excess bodies and then you should like remove them. Mm -hmm. And that was the kind of logic then. It's like, we, we can't support all these children. Stop having so many kids. You can ship a bunch overseas. And that brings us to what Jane is really fighting against, the adoption industry. A monstrosity, in Jane's eyes, that is led by organizations like Holt International. So I'm smoking my pen again. <laughs> I'm drinking my imaginary soju. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon today. Um, so I'm really mad at Holt. They're vultures, those people. They're just vultures circling, waiting for people to give them their children so they can sell them. Holt and other commercial adoption agencies engage in a practice called slash and burn adoptions because like the adoption industry will go to a certain country and then they'll do their bad practices with adoption until the international community kind of catches up with them hmm. and then they have to move to a different field basically they have to move to a different country to procure children so it just keeps moving around the world like that and for these organizations it's more about money than the happiness or prosperity of the adoptees. Which Jane says is why, when adoptees come looking for their birth family, they're often met with an organization who isn't necessarily willing to help. Yeah, well, it's, it's shit. They already made their money. They have really nothing to gain from um, helping, helping adoptees. There's one exception, though, and that's when the agency can still make some money. 
they sort of cash in on the adoptee's desire to connect. And if they have not kept good records, if they're no records, if they're bad records or whatever, then they give you the homeland tour to Korea. So they replace the motherland for the mother mm. or the parents. And it's like, okay, well, here's some bibimbap. You're like, well, I, I want to find the people who were on the same flight as me. Well, that'll be 500 bucks. What makes it what makes it worth 500 bucks for you to like get off your ass and open the file drawer, you know? After learning all of that, Jane was reaching a breaking point, a point where she knew she had to act. That's when she ended up getting involved with the Special Adoption Act. She said it all began with stories, stories from Korean moms who had lost their kids to adoption. In 2007, I had been seeing a lot of moms who had lost their children to adoption in Korea. There was this one woman who had a shop in a subway and I would just like go to her shop in the subway and like try to talk with her in my like broken Korean. And stories she heard from Korean adoptees about how their search for their birth family went wrong. And so we collected a bunch of these cases and filed a complaint with the National Human Rights Commission. And we did that and they sort of didn't care. (laughs) So So Jane and her fellow activists turned to what they call compassion lawyers in Korea. And they're called gongam lawyers. These lawyers basically specialize in public interest human rights law. They spent hours and hours and hours listening to us complain and complain and complain. (laughs) And they turned this into, like, legal language. The activists first set out to change the birth family search process. The goal was that everybody was going to be treated fairly because at the time it really mattered, like, did your social worker that you were assigned at the adoption agency, did they like you or not? Because the social worker is going to, like, help you out if she likes you, if you have like a TV producer on your side calling, or if there's like some powerful person they respect calling, but like if they don't like you and you're just like some nobody, like why should they waste their time on you? They're not making any money from helping you out. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to to be fair. Like you shouldn't have to go and buy an expensive cake and bring it so like somebody's gonna like you. Which sounds great and everything, but Jane said it didn't really work. There is now a process, but like a lot of other things in Korea, like people just, they don't wanna get off their ass. They don't want to think creatively. They just want to fill out papers. The biggest flaw is that they send what is called telegrams. And I still haven't really figured out what a telegram is. Like, is that different than a smoke signal? Is it, <laughs> like, send these telegrams to people. And if the parent doesn't reply, then it's interpreted as a no. Hmm. So first of all, we don't even know if we've reached the right person because you don't know if you've reached the right person until there's DNA. And secondly, Social work is about talking with people. You can't just send them like a smoke signal and expect that they're going to like know what this form is and how to fill it out or what the consequences are or their responsibility to the child because that person is the genetic parent of this person. Like, don't they have like some kind of responsibility to at least once in their life, like show up and say hi? I was kind of like, wait, but what else could they even do? I mean, they call them, send a letter, but they can't force the parents to talk, can they? Well, Jane had clearly thought this over. And there are really simple things, like creative things that they could do, such as go to the high school where they know this person went and just like see as the person in the yearbook. Like, couldn't they just like go there and like make a copy of the yearbook and offer a photo of this person to the adoptee? You know, something like that. I mean, it's really meaningful. Mm -hmm. Just a small gesture of kindness, even if they can't meet their parent, but they're still not doing that. So it's really frustrating. So there were some parts of the law that fell prey to human flaws, but there were other parts of the law that were really revolutionary. When we were talking about them, Jane started to get emotional again. 
But okay, some, okay, now I'm gonna cry, but some achievements of the adoption law are. Her eyes welled up and her voice got kind of shaky. And that's when I knew that these amendments to the law had probably changed the trajectory of families' entire lives. One of the things that we did is we instituted a waiting period before you could relinquish your child to adopt. And the reason why we did that is because in the past, the parent was able to and pressured to relinquish this child while they were still in the womb. Hmm. And we found out during the process of um, revising the law that this was never legal. You could never legally do that, but the adoption agency would drop these papers that would fool the birth mother into thinking that she had legally relinquished this child and that she was legally responsible for just giving that child up and she couldn't change her mind. Jane has her own relinquishment paper. She can see the line where her mom signed that yes, she would not change her mind. She would be giving up Jane for adoption. And so, for many mothers, Jane imagined their decision to sign would have been different had they been given more time. And it's different after, like, when you're pregnant and you just feel fat, it's, like, much different than, like, after you have you have your baby and you can hold your baby. Period in, like, Europe, in some European countries is around 30 days. But, you know, it's Korea, so we got seven. Actually, that made the relinquishment drop a lot. And for mothers who did want to relinquish their kids for adoption, they installed a court process. This part of the law standardized a process that used to be completely up to the agency to create. So the person actually has to like legally relinquish their child, not just like whatever like word file that the adoption agency made up. They have to go to court and do it. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time that there was an actual court process. Decades and decades and decades of international adoption happened and there was never like a court process. Like, can you imagine? And Jane knows this law changed people's lives for the better. She was invited to appear on a friend's YouTube show on adoption. Like it was, it was such a weird experience because like when I'm speaking Korean, I always feel like I have my head inside a styrofoam box because like like most of it's bouncing off, but like a little bit is making it in. But I'm like pretty sure it's distorted. And I was like, what? What? Did I hear you right? Huh? <laughs> so I, like hearing this all in Korean and found and it was like so unbelievable and incredible. The friend had invited a mother who was affected by the Special Adoption Act that Jane had helped pass. So her child is now like 10 years old. And so I'm sitting there with her like doing this kind of round table. And I was like, holy shit. Like she had decided to relinquish her child, but she couldn't because of that waiting period. And so I felt really sorry to her at first because um, I think it was really hard. Like that waiting period, like she just wanted to, like the easiest path was to do what she was being pressured to do, which is give up this child. <laughs> and so she wanted to do that, but then she had to comply with the waiting period, and after that waiting period, she decided that she wanted to raise this child. But I still wasn't convinced. The idea of the waiting period, it reminded me too much of the ways conservative courts and politicians in America try to strip Roe v. Wade of its power by instituting waiting periods where women have to sit on their decision to have an abortion. So I asked Jane about that. Like, isn't it a woman's right to choose? And doesn't the waiting period interfere with that right? Mm. Well, from our perspective, um, it's also a right to raise your child. The whole adoption industry this whole time has been telling women that they don't have the right to raise their child. You are greedy. If you want to raise your child, how are you going to raise your child? Where are you going to get money from? This child doesn't have a dad. You, this child is going to be so discriminated against. You are doing the loving right thing if you get rid of your ch child. And, you know, people will often ask adoptees, well, aren't you glad at least you weren't aborted? 
you know, mm. but we have a sort of opposite view on that, which is it's a reproductive right to have an abortion. It's also a reproductive right to raise your child. It's your right to choose. So Jane and her fellow activists made some huge changes to the adoption law in Korea. And like any change, there was backlash that followed. Like the, the domestic adoptive parent group. Those groups are like totally in the hand of the adoption agencies and have physically attacked people who have been working towards um, reform of the adoption systems in Korea. So Pastor Kim was physically attacked at the National Assembly. Um, the lawyer, Sorami, who helped to draft the legislation, she was physically attacked. When the law admitted doubt over the goodness of adoption, these adoptive parents felt like their goodness was being questioned too. So like there's obviously a break in the system somewhere, so we have to fix that. But really at every turn, because of their, I think, narcissism and ego, they really tried to block reform because they just want to be viewed as so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the adoptive parents um, think that we're just like talking about, oh, like, you're so bad, you're so bad. No, it's not like you're so bad, but like the whole point of the adoption system is that the child is supposed to go to somewhere better than where they came from. So being dead is not better than being even with a foster family or even an orphanage or even like with their birth family. Like being dead is not better. I was like, whoa, adopted kids dead? And this part of the episode gets a little gruesome. Um, even now, you know, with the, there's been a death of an adopted child in Korea. Her name is Jungin. Jungin was a 16-month-old baby who was abused by her adoptive parents for eight months before dying of severe abdominal injuries in October 2020. Mm, mm-hmm. And what about on the international stage? Uh, it's pretty much exactly the same. Um, there was the murder of Hyunsoo O'Callaghan. So he was also a Holt adoptee. Like, the, the murder of the Supel children. Um, there's this guy, Stephen Supel from Iowa, murdered his wife and his four adopted children from South Korea. Um, he tried to gas them in the car, but that didn't work, so he beat them to death with a baseball bat instead. Jane doesn't see these incidents as just a few individual mistakes people who happen to slip through the cracks of the system and adopt when they shouldn't have been able to. She sees them as part of a larger system and the attitudes that drive that system. Oh, this like chaps my hide so much. Like they talk about children who can't adjust, you know, and they blame it on the child. It's like, mm -hmm. well, maybe it is that the environment couldn't adjust to the child, their new environment. And the environment being like their parents, maybe their parents could not adjust to them or, you know, whatever. And so like right now, like all of Korea is like super mad because the president of Korea um, got involved in this. And like, I have like the unpopular opinion of the moment. Like he's like, well, yeah, well you can just return. Like if the child does not adjust, they're like blaming it on the child, then you should be able to return. Like he says, Tweetsaw, like return the child, like for another one, you know, like returning your pants because you brought the wrong size or something. Hmm. And so like, this is really like disgusting vocabulary and like a disgusting way to talk about it but the truth is isn't it better wouldn't that be better than being murdered like for sure if i was that child and that was my outcome do i want to be murdered like that or do i just want to be returned for a different pair of pants i would be like pants ultimately for jane 
If adoption is going to work, it has to truly be about what's best for the child and what's best for the mother. And Jane believes what is usually right is for those two to stick together. For both Jane and Diana, there's still so much left to do. Jane feels like there are more legislative changes she needs to make to adoption law before it's a fair process. Something that I really wanted to put in the adoption law, but we couldn't, but they didn't let in, was I wanted birth parents to be able to reach out to adoptees and to search for them. I wanted these parents to be able to offer their children information and to be able to um, have some kind of legal right, but they wouldn't let that happen. And so they still don't have that. I think you might have noticed by now, but Jane feels so much about adoption. That's what made her such a powerful activist. These feelings consumed her. But there's a reason that she's not still active today. But I'm also trying to be a mom here, and I can't be, like, angry all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, There's, yeah. I'm just, like, angry mommy. And there are <laughs> things that I still want to do. And I'm sort of thinking right now about, like, how can I do that without affecting my own child negatively? Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, and, like, I'm really well aware of this, is, like, when there is a person who is an activist, it kind of like tends to take over your life and who, you know, shit rolls downhill, who suffers the kids. So I don't want to make that uh, a thing for my daughter, but, um, you know, people people always say, well, your, your child can see that you're doing things and blah, 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 blah. It's like, um, I, I don't know. That's, that's like, like, I don't want it to be like some abstract thing where she can appreciate it later. Yeah. I want her as a six-year-old to be really excited that I'll talk with her about poop right now. (laughs) (laughs) As for Diana, Placed didn't give her all the answers she wanted. There's a whole lot more she feels like she has to learn about herself and where she fits in the world. My whole life, even to this day, I'm like, where do I belong? Like, what, what do I do? I think there's something to belonging and finding community in in the different multifaceted parts of your identity. Um, but also maybe, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, like maybe like true belonging doesn't actually exist, right? And it's more so finding the people who see you for you and love you for you, and they might be different from you, and they may not be the exact same as you, and they may not fully understand every single part of you. But that's okay. I think it's okay for me to not like have a group of, you know, queer Korean adoptees who are just like me and they're all creatives and you know, like because that's monotonous as well. Mm-hmm. And like that could be eventually boring <laughs> and a different type of assimilation. But in the end, Diana's not sure that she'll ever get the answers that she wants. For now, she's just searching. Constantly confused. <laughs> uh, no, I think there's something to like. I want to put like a more optimistic spin on it. Something to like resilience mm. and um, being like your own, molding your experience into what you want it to be versus a perceived idea of what it should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm still learning that. So. That's all for this episode of New Narratives. Special thanks to those featured in today's story, Diana Albrecht and Jane Jong Trenka. 
Diana's book, Placed, is available on Etsy for purchase. Music featured in this episode is by Motohiro Nakashima. This episode was written, edited, and produced by your host, Anya Steinberg, storyteller intern at Asian American Organizing Project. More info about AAOP can be found at our website, aaopmn.org. Thanks for listening.